All right, good morning, guys. Oh, that was pretty good. Hopefully, we'll get a little more warmed up as we go. So, everybody ready for another heartwarming, feel-good message from the book of James? <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, it, I know, I, I'm not sure, I can't speak for you guys, but for me, it's definitely very challenging going through this book because it is, it's a lot of convicting message and James doesn't pull any punches. And this, the um, chapter, the verses we're going to be going through today definitely carries on that theme. So I just, uh, I just really, like, at the same time, I want to see the beauty in that, though, because it's not just admonishment or even warning, but it is setting a path for us on how to really seek after God. And I uh, actually have something that we'll look through in a little bit on that. But first, I wanted to see, um, so James, written as a letter, isn't actually, wasn't originally done in chapters and verses. So even though we're starting a new chapter, chapter four, this is actually flowing directly out of what Wade taught on last week. So wanted to go through a little recap on that. Who remembers what were the two types of wisdom we were talking about wisdom. What were the two types that Wade talked about? Come on, somebody throw it out there. I know a couple of you are here. One was worldly, and we'll be talking about that. So in contrast to a worldly wisdom, what would we have? Godly wisdom, yes, good job, guys. So we're starting to warm up a little bit. But yes, we were talking about a worldly wisdom and a godly wisdom. And so in that, maybe you guys will remember this because I thought Wade did a great job in depicting this, the, uh, the idea of meekness. Now, in that, there were two views on meekness. There was a worldly view on meekness. Who remembers what the worldly view on meekness is? Weakness, yes, rhymes with meekness is weakness. But I thought the really cool when um, Wade got to the etymology of the word that they used for meekness in the Greek and what the godly version of that is. Does anybody remember what like the picture he used of that is? If not, it's okay. Yeah, it was a horse. See, somebody was there, somebody was on it. But what I liked about that, because it wasn't just any horse, it was the idea of this really powerful creature and the idea of meekness is taking that and not diminishing its power at all, but bringing it under the submission of its master. And I think a really good view of that, um, something we don't have time to get into or to watch the video, but it's great. If you look at a um, video of the original Horse Whisperer guy named by, I think it's Monty Roberts. Anyway, he has this awesome video where you can actually see, and I think it's a beautiful picture of what God does with us. So he goes into this circular arena with a horse and the horse is obviously very uncomfortable. This is a new horse that has never been ridden, has never been even really touched by a human being. And it's just running around the circle, fearful. And Monty just stands there as a presence, making himself known as this horse is going around. And the beautiful thing is, horses are community animals. And God created them that way. God also created people for community. And so a lot of the ways you'll see horses interact with each other is the same way God instilled those community aspects in us. So this horse is completely fearful, running around this ring. And when Monty knows it's ready, 
it'll start to look at him and it'll start to make really subtle gestures because it wants to be brought into community with Monty. And I think the beauty is that's the same thing God does with us. He lets us run around. He lets us strive in our own passions, but he's always there as a solid figure waiting, waiting for us to give him that sign. And what Monty does when that horse gives him the sign is he actually turns his flank to him as a sign that he's not aggressive towards the horse. And the horse will literally stop its running, walk right up to him, and start to nuzzle him because it wants to be brought in under submission. And I tell you, family, it's the same way for us. We have that yearning in our heart where we're running and we're striving under our own means and our own passion. And God is standing there waiting for us to just enter into that fellowship with him that he created for us long before we were born. And he desperately wants to see us walk into. So those are the things that we're gonna be going, we're gonna be carrying on from what we read in 3, 13, and 18. And I think it might be a good idea to just uh, refresh us a little bit on that, apparently, on what that was said. So I wanna just pick up on the godly idea of wisdom, 3, 17 through 18. So that is... But the wisdom from above is this, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those, by those who make peace. And so today, family, that's what I want for us. And as we go through this text, it is definitely gonna be a little difficult. It's gonna be challenging. And if you don't walk away challenged, like, I really want you to dive back into the text because this is challenging for anybody that's living and breathing. Um, But before we do that, I promised that I would give you guys a little bit of a sketch about what this is. So I'm gonna see if I can get this to work. Let's see, yep, looks like it's pulled up there. So Wade also gave us an illustration last week where he kind of tied this in with the idea of the fall, like he gave us a picture of Eve and the temptation and her choice not to enter into a godly meekness or a godly submission, but yet go for the worldly aspect. And I wanna draw out something that I actually, um, I've seen it several times, but it came up throughout the week and I think it's just a really great picture to help to understand what all of scripture is doing, but in this passage, we're gonna look at different elements of this. So let me draw it out for you and you guys will see. So what God gives us and what we've always had is a fellowship and a communion with him. And really, it's a path. And any poor penmanship, it's all the app, it's not me. Like I have really great handwriting, so just know that. And how God tells us to go on this path to life is through his commands. So you think about God in the garden and he gave commands. He said to go, be fruitful and multiply, right? And that was how we were gonna follow with him. We were gonna stay in community and we were gonna be on this path to life. The issue is, 
in order to truly give us free will, there has to be an option other than the path to life. So along this path to life, there are a couple of ditches. And these ditches, unfortunately, are death. And they're death from unbelief. Also, any uh, misspellings, that's the app as well. (laughs) And despair. And on the other side, there's death. And this is death from presumption. And that can be kind of hard to, it can be kind of hard to illustrate what that means, but basically this presumption is a cheap grace. It's something that means we don't, it's not costly. It doesn't, we don't have to give of anything to receive this. But God, again, in his beauty and wisdom, he knows us and he knows our hearts. And so he gave us these walls along the path within his scripture. So he gave us commands to keep us on the path. But he also inbuilt promises. Come back. Promises. And these are designed to wall us from the unbelief and the, dis- and the despair. So when we can say, can we really trust God? You think of Eve in the garden. Can we really trust God? Remember, he gave them his identity. He said, you are made in my image. Go out and steward. That was a promise. Like all of creation was given to them. His identity was given to them as image bearers. He withheld nothing from them, and that was the promise so that they could follow his command in the garden. But there's another wall, this cheap grace, and in there, there are warnings, and that was exactly what God gave in that to Adam and Eve and said, you can eat from any tree. That's my good gift to you. That's my command, but there's one tree that you can't, the knowledge of good and evil, because when you do you will surely die. And they didn't take hold of that. They didn't heed that warning. And so there was a death because they thought there was a way around it. They thought there was a way to earn grace apart from God. And I tell you, there is no other way. And so today, as we go through the book of James, you'll definitely start to get that picture. At least I hope you'll see that. And I want, I had a passage as I was going through this week in the book of Proverbs. And just so you know, I'm going to go through several other passages today outside of the book of James. I don't want you guys to feel like you have to flip through them. I just, I want you to really sit, soak them in, let them shape what you're learning about the text in James. So in Proverbs 10:17, it says, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. And I like the turn in that because that can be translated two different ways. It can either say they themselves are led astray or they can lead others astray. And I think that fits perfectly within even our idea of in the garden because first Eve was led astray and Adam was led astray with her. And that you and I will do the same things as we're families of missionary servants we are equally shaping each other in the gospel or we are shaping each other in the world depending on what we choose and what we choose to be shaped by 
and what promises and warnings we choose to heed along the way. So let me pray for us and then I will uh, open up in James. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your promises. I thank you for the good warnings that you give us so that we can heed and walk along the path that you've set before us. God, I pray today that what Chris said would be true, that nothing would come from me that's not of you, that all things that are said today from my mouth will be driven by the Spirit. And God, I also pray that ears in the room, all that hear would be open and that your Spirit would really touch upon them the truths of your word, that they would sink into their heart and allow them to walk out of these doors and take on that missional identity as servants, as learners, as a community fueled by the gospel to go out and proclaim your goodness and your truth to a world that's dying apart from it. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. Amen. All right, so I know that I've kind of built it up, and so with no further ado, let's dive in to James 4, and we'll be reading 1 through 10 today. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy turned to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That is the word of God. So for me, that is a super stirring um, passage. I think it really, it runs the gamut. And so as we go through it, as we break it down, I want you to really look for those three elements. I want you to see the commands that God's giving through it. I want you to see the promises that are laced in there. And I also want you to see the warnings that are placed before that so that we can really, not only so that we can walk down those paths, but we aren't leading others astray. We're actually bringing them onto that path. We're all going together towards God, towards his kingdom, and we're seeing that fleshed out in the world. So as we walk through it and we look uh, at the first, the first verse there, and it says, causing quarrels and fights among you, like that's actually, it's giving an illustration of armies and war and political battles. Like it's saying this is like a global thing that happens among you, not just 
in you, but in community. And what does it say the roots of it are? It says passions. Now, the cool thing about that word passions is it's another way to translate it in English would be pleasures, but it's actually the Greek word is the word that we get our English word hedonism from. And so it's this full out, not pleasures even, or passions, because you can see those either good or bad, but this is a fully taking on for yourself the things that you desire and forsaking all other things. The other neat thing about James's use of this word is it's very rare in the New Testament. In fact, it's only found in two other places, and one of them is in Luke 8.14, where Jesus is, and this is Jesus's speech, Luke records what Jesus said, and it's when he's talking about, he's giving a parable about hearts and the soil of hearts of men and how the kingdom is implanted in them. And he gives the idea of hardened hearts that the kingdom can't implant itself in. Um, He gives the idea of shallow hearts that initially hear the word and are thankful, but then quickly, whenever things come up, they quickly fade whenever struggles come up. And then he gives a third one. And this is soil that the seeds implant, the seeds of the kingdom, and they start to grow but there are weeds that are choking it out. And that's when, um, that's when Jesus actually uses that, um, when he actually uses that particular word for hedonism. And he says this, I'll just read it outright. Let's see. He says, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and the fruit does not mature. And so that's the picture that James is trying to give us here, is that it's our pleasures, it's our desires, our worldly passions that we're chasing after that cause the fruit of the kingdom, that cause what God places in us to be choked out to become quarrelsome and to fight. And I've got an illustration of this um, from my own life. I, uh, I used to work um, in a pretty, pretty secular industry, uh, automotive industry, and I worked with a guy that, I mean, this guy was all about his appearance. He went to the gym every day. I mean, the guy was ripped, looked great, and he loved to talk about his life because he hung out with really rich people. He was spending all of his time when he wasn't working out on the lake and these massive yachts. He was driving all these really nice cars. He was staying in the hills of Scottsdale in these mansions. And he was always talking about how great this was. And one day he and I are talking and I'm just kind of telling him about my life because my life looks a little different than that. Instead of tooling around in these really nice cars, I drive an 05 Accord, the paint's peeling off, but that's okay. I, I live in a, in a very nice house, but it's definitely far from the hills of Scottsdale. And most of my weekends are spent chasing after kids and cleaning up messes, not hanging out on yachts at the lake. And so, you know, I'm just sharing with him, I'm telling him this, and I will tell you that God really he'll put that on the hearts of people because this guy, you saw those walls come down and just for a split second, 
you could see like something behind his eyes that you didn't typically say. And he said, man, my life is so empty. He said, all of these things, I don't ever feel happy. He said, I wish I could have something like you have. And just like that, it was gone. He didn't want to hear about the truth, but it was in there. He knew it. He had just positioned himself in such a way that he couldn't hear it anymore. And so those, those are the passions that not only we see in our lives, but we see in others. And so those that are being led astray, it's on us to find them, bring them back into the fold, to show them the path to life. So then it goes on in 4.2 and it talks about your desire, you desire and you do not have, so you murder and you covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And so these are pretty harsh words. I mean, we don't typically think of ourselves in that regard as murder. And so you look, I actually looked into James to see like, was this really going on? And some people said, yeah, that might've been happening in the early church, but most say it's not. But what he's trying to say here, I mean, it could be actual, it could be a hyperbole, but if nothing else, it's a warning to us. It's giving us a clear picture of where pursuing our passions versus following God's path is leading us and it's leading us to murder. And we can even go a step further and we can think about what Jesus said to us in Matthew 5 when he told us that we've heard that you should not commit murder because you will come under judgment. But he said, he said, I tell you that you who have hate, I've even seen it translated as angry, who you who are angered with your brother have already committed murder and are subsequently under judgment. And so we can say, hey, I'm not a murderer. I don't, I don't have all these coveting things like these desires. I'm not out in fistfights. I mean, can't tell you the last time I got into a brawl, but I can say that Jesus came and he not only fulfilled the law, but he showed us a higher law. And he showed us that when we do enter even into these minor things, when we allow the world to start to creep in and pull us away from God and from his wisdom, we are the ones that are falling under judgment and we will be held accountable for those things. So it starts to get a little heavy there and we start to think, man, like how, like you think about like Jesus's um, disciples, who can, who then can be saved? Like, how can we get past this? But God gives us the answer. He said, you do not have because you do not ask. And then he gives the caveat, you ask, but you ask to seek your own passions. You'd be like, God, I have been praying every day since I've been saved. I've been praying for that Ferrari to show up and it has not made it into my driveway yet. Like, that's not what God's saying here. But, I mean, that could be humorous, but there are other people. I mean, people that have dealt with dying family members. They're sick. I, I went through that myself. And there are all these things that we say, God, like, I am asking, why aren't I receiving those things? And I'll tell you that the best, the best that we can come to is God has a plan and has a purpose. And he says, come to me and ask, and none of that will be wasted. You may not see 
what his purpose and plan is. And you may not understand why things go the way that they do, but never stop asking, never stop petitioning, not for yourself, not for your brothers and sisters in Christ, and not for those who don't know Jesus yet. Continue to ask because the reason God spelled it out here that we don't receive those things is because we don't humble ourselves and ask with a true and humble heart. So then, if that wasn't strong enough, you know, saying that we're murderers and coveters, then he goes a little bit further and he says, you adulterous people. So the word there actually is, it's actually, uh, it talks about a feminine adulteress. And so you could look at that and some people did decide that way. They're like, oh, well, he's switching gears now and he's talking to women. And some people actually interpreted that that way. But I tell you, the way that we can read that is as an adulterous bride. Because who he's talking to is the church. He's talking to me and he's talking to you. He's talking to the bride of Christ. And he's saying, you adulterous people, you have given in to your own passions and you've stopped following godly wisdom. You've stopped tracking with me down the path to life. So then he carries on and he tells us, I mean, he spells it out. This is really the crutch, right? This is what we've been talking about where he starts to talk about this convergence of worldly and godly wisdom. He just outright, don't you know that if you are a friend to the world, then by definition, you are an enemy of God. You've positioned yourself that way. That's the, that is where he's leading us to. He's saying that idolatry, the selfish ambition, those are all driving us away from our identity as the bride of Christ. And the cool thing is, in our culture, in our society, we often read these as individual passages, as individual sayings for us. And I don't know if you've noticed how I've been setting that up where I'm not a murderer, I'm not a coveter. And when you read this, I can bet that the majority of you read it the same way. But he doesn't say, he says you adulterous people for a reason. It's plural because he's talking to a community. This is where we have to step out of the identity of the individual and we have to stop saying, well, that may be true for them, but it's not true for me. Because just like I said, the horse was a community animal, the person was built for community. We were built first and foremost for community with God but the way that he has that fleshed out just as God is a perfect community, he created the body to be one, to be a community. And so we can't harbor this individualistic nature anymore. We have to understand that the truth of this passage applies to us as Missio Dei Peoria, as a family of missionary servants. James is talking to us now and he's saying, what, what do you choose as a body do you choose life or do you choose death? Because I'm putting them both before you. And I tell you that Wade and Chris, I'm so thankful for them because they are constantly pushing, turning me, turning all of us back to the truth. They're turning us back to the gospel. They're turning us back to life. But that's not just their responsibility. That's my responsibility. That's your responsibility. Every single one of us, what James is saying here. Don't let your brothers and sisters be at enmity with God. Don't let them become an enemy of God. 
bring them back into the faith. Keep pointing them back to the gospel. Keep, keep pointing me back to the gospel, please. We all need it. Wade and Chris need it. I need it. Anthony needs it. All of us. So that's, that's the crux of what we're going to do here today is we're going to see that we as a people of missionary servants are called and given a beautiful identity in Christ to go out and to live not at war with God, but to become an enemy of the world in the sense that we're going to push back on our pleasures. We're gonna push back on that nature. We're gonna give sacrificially. We're going to lift each other up in prayer daily. That is the identity that God's leading us to and that's the path to life. So, this, it continues on where God, he, he kind of spells that out and he just reinforces that idea in verse five. And it's kind of interesting because he says, do you suppose that it's for no purpose that the scripture says? But if you, see, if you look through scripture, it does, there's no place where it actually says that. But what he's really doing is pulling from a number of Old Testament texts to saying this is the heart of God. Like this is God's identity throughout scripture. This is who we know God to be. He's someone that with a righteous, with his righteous nature and his need for holiness, he brings us in as a father and he says that I, I am the one that deserves all of you. I've created everything in you and that is for me. So it's, I mean, you can see it as a hard passage and this is, I mean, this is a lot of hard text, but that's like a promise. If you guys really look at it, he's saying like, I've heard it said um, that, you know, God, there's not a square inch in all of creation that God doesn't declare this is mine, but that's true of you as well. Every single one of you, God has said, you are mine. And that's where it follows up. And this is, I think, the most beautiful part of this passage because he gives more grace. This is not a God that is giving us these commands. It's just sitting up from some high throne on heaven to say, you guys messed up. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. I have every right, which he does, to hurl all these condemnations upon you. This is a God that came down that indwelt flesh to live among us, that said, you are so important and you can't possibly redeem yourself, so I, I will come down. The word made flesh will come down and will take your sin upon you. The world, I will be the enmity to the world for you because you have not been able to do it for yourself. He did that for each and every one of us. And so then when it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, I want you to go back to that picture of the horse whisperer standing there and the horse running the gamut, running around him. And that's each and every one of us. God's standing there waiting for us and we're running that circle. And the proud will run themselves to death they will continue to circle that track until they can't anymore and they will drop from it. But those that seek to humble themselves, those that seek to come up and submit themselves under God, there is so much grace in that waiting for you. And so that's what God is calling us to. 
And again, I say that many of us here have already taken on that grace, but we are sent into a world daily of people that we can just see them running that circle. Like my state farm guy, he was running that circle and he knew it. He knew it. He knew he was gonna drop from it, but he was too proud to let it go. And we'll see that time and time again. We need to call those people back, not to us and not to anything that we do right, but we need to call them back to Jesus. We need to call them back to submit at the foot of the cross. So the, the last part of this, um, it, I want you to see, and I'm going to read through it again, but the whole thing is bookended by that idea of being humble. And so I want you to look through that, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what each of them means. So it says, submit yourselves, therefore, to, or it says, um, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And that was just the picture that we just talked about. But then it says something interesting. It almost seems weird because it's talking about God. Then it just throws in this resist the devil and he will flee from you. And I think what they're trying to do here, and I'll, I'll, as I close, I'll show you the picture of this. But it, it, again, even where it bookends this whole passage with humble, it bookends this with submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and then it says draw near to God. And this is the same picture. Like you can go through and there are all these sayings and it's hard to see the connection between them, but it's the same picture James has been giving us from verse three to now. There are two paths in front of you. There are two wisdoms, there are two choices. There's God in the world. And he's saying, draw near to God. Stop running the circle and come in. Resist the devil and he'll run from you because he has no power. The only power the devil has is the power that you will give him in your life. And so he's saying, resist that. And then he says it, reiterates it again. Humble yourself before God, resist the devil, draw near to God, stop running the circle, Come in and submit yourself at the feet of Christ. And then it closes with this like really like heartwarming thing where it tells you to be wretched and to mourn and weep. You know, it, like it is, it's really feel good message from the book of James. So let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Like that's like, we can take, you know, that's like uplifting, right? You can have a party around that, right? Like no laughter, let's mourn, you know. But, it, and so as we think about that, it's like, what do you make of that? What do you even really do with that? And what I want you to see, uh, what I want to close with is this idea from Matthew. Um, it, it, we'll talk about Matthew 5, but I want to talk about Matthew 4 because I think it really, it draws this beautiful picture of what God's calling us to do. And this is the cool thing about our faith. Like there's not, it's not this thing where God's removed up in the sky and he doesn't give us the chance to live this out. Like he came down in flesh and he showed us what it meant to be truly human. And in Matthew 4, right after Jesus had submitted himself to baptism, he went out into the desert. 
And so just so we could be clear that he wasn't doing this under his own strength, he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. And that's when he submitted himself to the temptation of the devil. But I want you to see that in those 40 days, he wasn't feeding his body, but he was feeding his spirit. He was humbling himself before God. And so then when the devil came, the devil tempted him with everything that we have in the world. He tempted him with the bod- like, with like bodily relief, with that pleasure of the flesh to say, hey, you're hungry. You haven't eaten in 40 days. There's rocks here. They could be bread. And Jesus knew that it's not about those worldly passions. And it's not that that's a bad thing. Like God gives us good food and I love every minute of it. But what it's about is knowing that there is a higher power that we are constantly feeding on. And so then the devil, the devil told him that he took him up to the height and he said, you know, if you're the son of God, like God won't let anything happen to you. Show it. And he knew like that's not, when we ask and we don't receive, we don't push God to the limit. We humbly submit to God's will and we know that God is not one that we put to the test. But we don't we do that in our prayers? We say, God, if you're really there, this would be, this is really needed. And sometimes those aren't selfish things. You know, like when my sister was dying from cancer, I would have really liked to see God show up and heal her miraculously. I know so many people that have that same story and they could tell you that same thing. But God has a bigger and greater plan and it's not ours to usurp that and take over that identity. Ours is to submit and obey. And Jesus knew that and he resisted the devil there. And then probably the greatest thing for all of us, he, the devil gave Jesus the opportunity to really indulge in his pride. He said, I will give you dominion and power over everything in creation, over everything on this earth, all the kingdoms of the earth, if you'll bow down and submit to me. And Jesus told him, no, be gone. And what did the devil do? He left him. And I tell you, that's the same thing the devil does to you and I. It's the same thing he did to Adam and Eve. He said, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. They were already like God. They were his image bearers. But he tricks you and he says, do this. Follow your passions, follow your pleasures. Get off of that path, like that silly little path to life. Come over here to the cheap grace side. And that's why God gives us these warnings. And I think that it's not, It's very fitting because when he says to be wretched, to mourn and weep, in Matthew, right after that, in Matthew, right after Jesus was tempted by the devil, he went on and he called his disciples. And then you find in Matthew 5, just a couple verses later, He's giving one, probably one of the most famous sermons, one of the most famous things in, the, in all of the New Testament is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he says. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, which in some translation says, blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. It's not like, Jesus, like James is trying to give us this big downer and say, you should go around mopey and gloomy all the time. He's saying, no, this, isn't, this is a heart posture. How are you going to be before God? How are you going to stand before him? And so I think that it's, it's definitely not by accident that he says that he begins and ends that passage. Humble, humble, humble. That is that posture that we take before God. So to close us, I want to go to another passage. And like I said, please don't feel like flipping through all of these things. These are just something that I want you to take in. And I want you to really let it shape the text that we heard today. So Jesus was telling a parable. And he, talked, he was actually talking to teachers of the law, and he said this. He said, there were two men that went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what James is telling us. That's how we forgo our worldly passions is to humble ourselves, humble ourselves at the feet of Christ. And so as we go and we take communion, that's exactly what I want you guys to do. I want you to get together in groups and I want you to remind each other that as we take the bread, that we're really entering in, Jesus is inviting to enter us, enter into his death, that he was buried to the world. And just as that, we can be raised to new life in God's kingdom with him. As we take the cup, we can remember that our sins, that our giving in to our worldly passions, to our flesh, those were taken by the blood spilled by Jesus on the cross. So guys, go now to the tables and remind each other of that. And for those of you that are a part of Missio, remind each other that by giving of your tithes and offerings as well.